1: Joining us now to break things down is Ron Temple, Lazard Asset Management, Managing Director and Co-Head of Multi-Assets. Ron, it's great to catch up with you. What's on the agenda as you get back to work? It's Wednesday, January 3rd. Fed minutes are about to drop. You're waiting for earnings from some of the big corporates over the next couple of weeks as well. What is at the
2: top of the list? No, I think today on the agenda, obviously, we're watching for the FOMC Minutes, as you've already mentioned. But the other thing I think a lot of us are working on right now is trying to figure out exactly how the tax reforms in the U.S. will affect earnings for U.S. companies. I mean, there's a lot of detail in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act the TCJA. And so we've had companies gradually trickling out a bit of information about how they might pay out a small bonus to employees. You know, A number of the banks have come out and said they'll give a $1,000 bonus to each of their employees who make under a certain income level. Yeah. But what we really need to see is the, the very specifics of how that tax plan will affect net income. And it's not that easy to assess from outside of a company because a lot of it depends on cross-border flows in terms of between multinational entities. And, you know, understanding how I think the provision was called BEAT, which is uh, basically the uh, the enhancement and avoidance of tax uh, element. So base enhanced, baseline enhancement. So we're trying to watch a lot of this, waiting for companies to give us more granularity. I think we'll start getting that late next week whenever we start getting the bank earnings. How mechanical will it be, Ron?
1: Because from the outside, looking in from 35,000 feet, you could just sit there and say, Wow, well, they take the new corporate tax rate, they plug that in, and then they give you some brand new guidance for the year ahead.
2: Oh, it's, yeah, I wish it were that simple. And I think what you've seen from a number of the sell-side strategists, which is still helpful, is taking a broad brush approach and saying, okay, if your effective tax rate was X and the new tax rate is Y, let's look at the difference in how much earnings yeah. go up. But it really does come down to which legal entities within a company have which exposures across borders really drives, for example, some of the, interest, the corporate interest deductibility provisions. And that is not disclosed in most 10Ks or 10Qs. So even if you do the most in-depth fundamental research, you can possibly do from outside a company, much of this is almost impossible to decipher. Do you have a big
1: sector focus right now?
2: Uh, with In terms of holdings, no. I think one area where we have seen opportunity over the last year and say at the latter part of last year was increasing exposure to the energy sector. Um, it is one of the few areas of the market where actually you've seen the PE ratio go down materially last year. And we've seen energy prices basically move up, which could bode well for some of these companies. And also, our long term al- analysis of the demand trajectory for fossil fuels still actually looks reasonably well, positive for these companies.
0: You mentioned fossil fuels, which gets us right to a headline, which is Ron from our Ute, when you and I were younger, doing level one, level two, level three. And it would be the offshoot of the Virginia Railway and Power Company. And of course, that is Dominion D, and you know, the ultimate yield stock of years ago. Dominion to buy Scanna. I hate these modern names, Ron. S-C-A-N-A. I have no idea what Scanna is. I think they serve hot dogs at the Atlanta Braves Stadium. South Carolina Electric and Gas Company is the adult name for Scanna. But it does speak to one of the trends here, which is mergers into this year. Dominion to buy Scana, stock deal $55.35. We'll have much more on that through the day. But there it is no nominal GDP, tough revenue growth. We got to merge. That's a theme, right?
2: I think we'll continue to see that. I mean, I do think we will see better top line growth on the back of better wage growth in the US. I think the synchronized global recovery will lead to a better economic environment for companies to organically grow. But I also think if you think about what drives mergers mergers and acquisitions, it's CEO confidence, it's financing costs. You know, it's a number of these kind of factors in terms well, of the, the drive activity. And
0: John and I have talked about this before, John. This is the the lemmings thing. You go the, everybody for the door in the theater is rates rise, John Farrow. You wonder what CFOs tell the CEO. Like, let's go is maybe the big surprise for two thousand. 18. Have they
1: been planning that already, Ron, on the refinancing side of things? Have they been plugging in the low rates for longer, longer maturities, lower rates? Have they been making those moves before rates
2: rise? I do think the corporates have largely termed out their debt and taken advantage of these incredibly low rates. And they recognize that they're historically low. But by the way, let's be fair, they've recognized they were historically low for the last 10 years, right? So every time you turn them out, you found you could term it out even longer <laughs> at a lower rate. But I do believe in 2018 that we are going to see higher interest Interest rates the long end of the curve. I mean, if I look at the Eurozone, where 50% roughly of Eurozone sovereign debt yeah. had a negative yield at the end of the year in nominal terms, and yet you've got an economic recovery that is four years into this process, I think you're going to see higher rates in the Eurozone, I mean, easily, I think you could see 10-year bond yields top 1% this year. And I think that will have a relative value effect on U.S. Treasuries. So so if I look at fixed income and interest rates, I do believe rates higher in 2018 is a high probability call. And if I'm a company, I'm going to think about that in terms of my opportunity to lock and load in terms of these. these so, so that's
1: the corporate response. So, I want to gauge what the investor response is, because investors will look at that situation at some point. You stop using the S&P 500 ETF as a money market fund and and cashing in whenever you like for a profit and start looking at what's happening in treasuries and saying, you know what, there's some income in fixed income and I'd like to go there.
2: This is a multi-factor question, right? I think part of it is the level of dividend yields. Part of it is the level of interest rates. The other factor to keep in mind is what's happening with corporate pension plans. With record levels on equity markets, many of the private pensions are now fully funded. And if they get the opportunity where you get a 50 to 100 basis point yield back up, the appeal of immunizing their pension risk and shifting out of equities into fixed income to match their assets and liabilities will be pretty compelling. So I do think that will be an interesting interplay.
0: Ron, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ron Temple with us with Lazard. Just a great way to kick off uh, the year he is uh, with Lazard Asset uh, Management. Out of Minneapolis, Narayana Kachalakota, one of our most esteemed economists, thinking in a way of mathematics, he decided, getting out the map in Minnesota, to move to warmer climes and joins us this morning (laughs) from Rochester, New York. Let's cut to the chase, uh, uh, Professor Kachalakota at the University of Rochester. You can look out your window. Has the Genesee River frozen over?
3: Uh I you know, I, I don't look on the river, but I'm sure it's frozen.
0: <laughs> it is. Well yes, it's quite
3: quite cold. It's been cold here for quite some time. And so. it will
0: keep the Jenny Cremail uh, was warm as well. You have a terrific chart out for Bloomberg View today of the core conundrum that Chairman Powell faces. Can people like you actually move inflation? We have disinflation, we're told. We have a core PCE South. Can people in suits and ties, in expensive dresses like Chair Yellen wore, can you actually move the needle on inflation?
3: You know, I think the, the key is really to think about it is that the Fed can stop inflation from coming. And it can stop inflation from coming by by raising its, its regulator, tightening its regulator on the economy. That is raising rates. Mm-hmm. Um, And what I worry about is that over the past few years, you know, since the the, the initiation of liftoff in in December 2015, uh, you know, the Fed's complained, "Boy, inflation's too low." Well, if inflation's too low, why are you trying to choke off economic activity by raising rates? Um, If the Fed were to to take a much more gradual approach to raising rates, uh, standing back, letting letting um, uh, the economy grow more rapidly, uh, that's going to it's going to have to lead to more demand for, for workers. That's going to push up right. on wages and costs for firms. And you're going to get inflation.
0: Within the model building that we do, within the Newtonian mechanics that you are expert at, and frankly, we go beyond uh, the work of, say, Alfred Marshall and even uh, Maynard Keynes and, and John Hicks, as we go to modern mathematics, do we have the tools available given the behavioral and demographic realities of our economy? Can you dovetail your mathematical world with the depeopling of America, with the lack of population growth, with, with all sorts of inequalities that are out there?
3: You know, these are great questions and there's a, a ton of work going on on all these issues. Yes. Um, you know, the, 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 the uh, major meetings for, for economics are gonna be taking place over the weekend and there'll be a, a lot of conversation about exactly these kinds of questions. But with all that said, monetary policy doesn't re- isn't really at the, the cutting edge of all these kinds of issues. It, if you see inflation too low, it's mm-hmm. pretty simple what you have to do. Keep policy okay. easy. And, and and right now what we're seeing is the opposite, raising
0: you, rates. You are, I'll suggest, uh, I mean, and this goes to the legacy of Gary Stern and the Minneapolis Fed, you are wonderfully agnostic in the political debate. There is a common ground, I'm just going to pick on two folks, between Rick Mishkin of Columbia and Charles Plosser out of the Carnegie Rochester Freshwater School. They have a lot of common ground, and yet they aggressively disagree on whether a central bank can get out in front of, of the trend, or if by definition they act after the fact. What's your experience here? Is the central bank by definition ex post? I,
3: I think that the, the, it's, it's very difficult to predict where bad times are gonna come from, always. I, I think the, 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 the job of central banks is to be as aggressive as possible in terms of the cleanup after after uh, sure. uh, bad shocks have taken place.
0: Well, I agree that I, mean, I guess we saw that, but it's not 2008, 2010. The intellectual courage of Ben Bernanke and others as uh, we came out of this crisis. We're now a decade on, so now what should be the policy?
3: Uh, I, look, I think that um, uh, the post you are kind enough to refer to made made the point that actually we still see the economy very subdued relative to where we were 10 years ago. Uh, and even to where we were 18 years ago, to the beginning of, of the 2000s. Um, and I, so I think that behooves the Fed to remain very accommodated mo- with monetary policy. Look, it's not a question of trying to make things happen. It's a, a question of not getting in the way of things that are happening. So you see this great uh, tax bill uh, that uh, Congress passed, and I, I say great in terms of actually trying to improve the growth outcomes for, for the US, both on the, the demand mm-hmm. side, and on the supply side, if, um, uh, if those growth outcomes can only materialize if the Fed doesn't get in the way of them happening by raising rates too rapidly.
0: How do you respond to the cocktail of potential GDP that is subpar based on new productivity and population realities? If Michael Feroli at J.P. Morgan out of Booth Chicago, if Michael Feroli can say it's sub 2%, do you adjust your calculus now at the Fed, or do you have to wait until you see the whites of subpar GDPIs?
3: I think the, you know the Fed has been adjusting its its vision and potential I agree. over the last uh, uh, over the last eight or nine years, and and um, you you'll see in the in the forecasts of FOMC participants that they they've adjusted their their vision downward, but. The question is, how much downward should you go and how much gap is left? And I, I, I think there's still more room for improvement that can be facilitated by monetary policy. Um, the, the one piece I'll make, point I'll make on potential is that, that some of the, the, the things that are in the tax bill and also the deregulatory uh, initiatives coming out of the White House, are actually aimed at boosting potential output. Okay, and but, that's something that the, the Fed has to take well, into account. Well, this
0: is critical, and I don't want... I, I, you know, it's a media question. I apologize, Professor, but I'm going to go there right now. How do you respond when the President of the United States suggests 3% real GDP and some of his supporters get out to 4% real GDP? Can we get there given the potential calculus we've got right now?
3: So I, I think it's a question of what people mean when they throw those numbers around. If they yeah. mean... Uh, they think that uh, uh, potential growth can be permanently or even over a decade at 4% per year. I'm extremely skeptical. Um, Can we get there without, can we get 4% growth uh, for uh, a year or even two years without causing undue inflation? Mm -hmm. Possibly, I mean, that's a possible issue. And then that becomes, you know, if you're in the White House, I can see why you might want to push on that as much as you can.
0: Professor Karchulakota, let me ask you one final question by requirement do we need a katra lakota like vice chairman of the fed everybody says chairman powell has certain constructive attributes but does he need someone that understands Clarida and gertler's dsge does he need somebody sitting in that vice chairman chair that can get through your phd thesis
3: uh you know, I I, I think that uh, I worked closely with Jay when I uh, Jay Powell when I was on the on the FOMC, sure. and I I, I I think that he's a very smart guy. He's able to analyze a a bunch of uh, the, the frame. I think he understands the frameworks well. I think he understands how they they come to the data. Is he is he going to do cutting edge research in economics? No. Do you need a vice chair like that? Please. I, I don't I don't really think so. I I think that it's you want someone who the chair, the main thing you're gonna want in that position is um, someone who's gonna be very supportive to the chairs, the chair feels comfortable with, and the chair feels is, is going to be uh, helpful to, to him in, uh, in, in, in making their decisions. That might well be somebody who has a lot of uh, uh, mathematical firepower, but uh, it might well not be. I, I think it really depends on, what, uh, on the chair and what, 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 what in this case he wants.
0: Professor, thank you so much for joining us today from the University of Rochester, Nariana Kachalakota, of course, uh, with the Minneapolis Fed. Uh, a good tour of duty there between Gary Stern and Neil Kashkari uh, a, a, a bit ago. Why don't you bring in Krishna Mamani? All right, I, I, I You don't want to I know. I don't even ta- know why he showed up for work in 2018 Ooh. after how international stocks, stocks did performed last year. year?
4: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Krishna Mamani, thanks very much for being with us. Of course, from uh, Oppenheimer Funds, the chief investment officer. Happy New Year to you. Uh, you've written in the past or said in the past that the tax overhaul bill is going to give us a one-time pop. What happens after that?
5: So uh, for the markets to get to a different level altogether, economic growth has to pick up in a meaningful way through increased investments if this tax bill is going to deliver superior growth. In our view, that is less likely. What is going to happen is you basically have a trillion-dollar deficit that basically provides a fiscal stimulus, and as a result, in the short term, you'll get a, a pop in terms of uh, uh, growth. In addition, companies would be making more money because they're paying less taxes. And as a result, earnings are going to go up. Once all of that kind of flushes through the system, we're back to the same trend upward trajectory as we had before.
4: Will you say upward trajectory, upward trajectory of what, asset prices like stocks?
5: Oh, yes. Uh, The upward trajectory, both uh, uh, growth is going to be at a constant, in our view, around, let's say, two and change. In that context, as the economy grows, profitability grows, asset prices will probably continue to trend up. In our view, this is still going to be the longest business cycle that any of us has ever experienced. We don't expect a recession in 2018 or 2019, for that matter.
4: Is this really a business cycle or is it a credit cycle? Really
0: good question.
5: Well, really, really, I, I think that's a that's a that's a really good question. I think the business cycle and credit cycle at this point are correlated, uh, and because this cycle really has been so muted, if the if the credit cycle. Uh, uh, has difficulty in some way. That is, we end right. up in a situation where we have problems in, in credit creation. I think the growth is going to slow down okay. more so than before.
0: Uh, Pim was old enough. We were too young, Krishna, to do this. But if we were at Oxford with John Hicks a few years ago, and you look at the classic ISLM model, what Pim's great question is, are we on the IS curve, and is that the dynamics we should watch, the real economy, or are we on the LM curve, that strange financial system and money base that we work within. What has your attention here, that real economy, or is it the financial dynamics that, that reigns supreme in 2018? So I think
5: this has been a topic of discussion for quite some time, people asserting that it's really all funny money. That is, it's because of monetary gerrymandering that we are getting the markets to a different level. We don't think that is the case. That is, if you look at the growth in earnings, if you look at the fundamentals of the economy, things have improved meaningfully, and they continue to improve. In 2018, we think growth is going to be better in the U.S. and on a global basis. Earnings are going to be better in the U.S. and on a global basis, and therefore, markets are going to be higher. A lot of that is already anticipated and therefore priced in, so we don't have uh, uh, superlative expectations with respect to the market, but I think this is more fundamental driven rather than just the LM part that you were talking about.
4: So where do you focus your attention, in growth stocks?
5: Well, yes, uh, we we continue to favor growth stocks. uh, Some expectations in the markets is that we'll get back to the value uh, bandwagon soon. I I don't think that is the case. For that to happen, uh, rates have to move up meaningfully higher. Inflation expectations have to go up meaningfully higher. We don't think that happens. Uh, You know, the the, the things to watch in that regard uh, would be if the investment cycle picked up in a meaningful way. Uh, again, we don't think that is going to be the case. So we are still focused on growth stocks. And we are, uh, from a geographic standpoint, we are far more focused right. in uh, international and emerging markets than in the U.S.
0: Okay, uh, Krishna, if I go to Davos, which I am here in a number of weeks, there are going to be buses plastered with, there's going to be an infrastructure boom in pick Kazakhstan. This morning, Jonathan Mailer in New York Magazine writes a definitive article, excuse me, New York Times Magazine, The definitive article on the case for the subway, on building the subway and, you know, all that. I mean, is infrastructure part of the investment cycle that I could be in domestically and international? So internationally,
5: investments are actually slowing rather than accelerating, primarily because of slowdown in investments in places like China, which have been booming for quite some time. They are moving to a consumer-driven economy. What you're talking about is really an infrastructure boom in the U.S. I wish that was the case. I wish um, the billion uh, or the trillion dollars that we spent on tax cuts was spent actually in infrastructure because that would have revived the U.S. economy and potentially gotten us to a different level from a growth
0: perspective. We are thrilled to have with us Krishna Mamani at Oppenheimer Funds. Full disclosure, folks, Oppenheimer Funds has been more than supportive of all we do here at Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg uh, Surveillance uh Krishna, uh, uh, we've had a bang up year, as we mentioned earlier. How do you find companies? I mean, do you make sector bets on Indonesia? Do you go long Indonesia like the game of risk from our childhood? Or does somebody out there, some 32-year-old young Turk at Oppenheimer Funds, do they find a mom and pop business 400 miles from Jakarta and say, this looks good? How do you actually do it? So you
5: know for in investing in emerging markets uh, for that matter investing anywhere we are more company specific rather than geography. So the best example of that is probably China. If you want to invest in China, you don't want to invest in a Chinese steel company despite the fact that Chinese steel companies probably is the largest part of the Chinese economy. You really want to invest in Chinese consumers, the internet companies who are doing fantastic things in terms of creating new businesses and opportunities. So for us, it's all about companies and then we aggregate it up to a level Mm -hmm. that uh, that we look at but it's really about companies rather than geography
0: Okay, so in the time of method two in this historic day for global wall street it's based on buy side like oppenheimer funds or sell side traditional sell side uh, research do you need sell side research in the future or is that going to become less dominant for Krishna mamani buy side animals well
5: so, you know, at, at the end of the day, if we simply rely on sales side research, then we basically would be part of the consensus because there are lots of consumers okay, yeah, of that yeah, research. So, that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we, we, we really focus on doing all of our things. Our investment philosophy is really focusing on long-term trends. You know, we have stocks that we have owned for 20, 30 years because it fits a particular approach and philosophy. So yeah, but, we focus <clears throat> on finding those opportunities in companies and, that – uh, can take advantage of those. And Pim,
0: you'll remember I, I, this. I, I, the way you played Mexico was to buy <laughs> T-Mex. Yeah. I mean, that's what you used to do, Krishna. You'd buy the big telephone company or the big concrete company.
4: Semex, right? Exactly. Those days are over, Kim, uh, right? Krishna, uh, I just want to push a little bit here. Okay, I got the idea of China and the consumer. So in my mind, I immediately think Alibaba, symbol B A B A. That's not hard. If you decide that Alibaba is going to be sticking around and going to benefit from increased spending from the Chinese consumer, why do I need Oppenheimer? To tell me that, the stock is up 110% from last December, from December 2016. Why wouldn't I just stick with Alibaba and call it a day?
5: Oh, If you have the capability of going out and finding those opportunities. No, no, but not finding those
4: means. opportunities. I mean, finding this opportunity, right? I mean, Alibaba's plastered over every story that you write or hear when it comes to China. I mean, we, we got it. Alibaba, Jack Ma, success story, fabulous. Stock's up 7.5% this year so far. And I mean, Absolutely. so I'm wondering why make it more complicated?
5: Well, we, we like Alibaba too, but our point would be that there are better opportunities than just Alibaba. What you want to do is find Alibaba five years ago uh, so or finding Tencent 10 years ago. So it's really not focusing on names that we all know about. It's really focusing on names that have the potential of becoming names that we will eventually know about.
4: So that means that you were you were invested in Alibaba way back, 2014, for example.
5: Absolutely. We have been investing in Alibaba from the IPO, uh, and uh, we invest in some private companies long before the IPO. So, yes, uh, we go out and talk to—I was actually in China uh, three weeks ago meeting all of these little companies that, uh, that kind of are creating new businesses. So tell us and about the best of-
4: new business, the best small business that you met with three weeks ago.
5: Well, so, you know, we, we met with a car-hailing company, the competitor for Uber in, 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 in China, and they are delivering almost, uh, uh, let's say, 20 million rides a uh, right here. It's a private company, and we are invested in it as a private company, along with all sorts of uh, really good investors like SoftBank and Alibaba. And, and having, getting access to these types of opportunities... So would it be Didi? Really, yes, that would be exactly Didi.
4: All right. So you you met with you met with Didi, and you said this is a company that we love. Is there any pushback? I mean, what do you, you I mean? I guess ride herring, but I mean, you know, Uber doesn't make any money, and Didi's investing money in places like Brazil and buying bike sharing programs.
5: Well, so you know, clearly they are investing in lots of new opportunities, but their their uh, current business in China and even their business in, in in Brazil is actually getting to a much better level than their uh, their competitors. The point isn't that uh, that we we uh, we invested in DD because mm-hmm. they are going to be turning uh, you know p- positive. The point is you basically have to tap into the ecosystem. We met a company there, uh, for example, that is actually trying to. Uh, do the same thing that uh, car hailing companies did uh, for ride sharing into the half truckload uh, transportation in China, yeah. which is a fantastic opportunity where you can disintermediate a whole lot of local brokers and create a create a good business. And if you can get to that in the early stage enough, you can you can do very well.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Christian Momani. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. With Oppenheimer Funds, a good briefing there on. Uh, some of the block and tackle, of course, all of this on the backdrop of MIFID, too. Okay, the stereotype, the myth. Texas is Republican. Let's begin with a little history. Lyndon Baines Johnson, 22, 23 seats. And the Texas delegation, the explosion of the Texas economy, it brings it out to 36 seats today. And the stereotype and myth is they're all Republican. You know the story. Will Hurd knows that is not true. He is a congressman from a 23rd district thinks San Antonio. His district is 70% Hispanic, and he won barely within that closely contested 23rd district, and he joins us uh, right now. Congressman Hurd, wonderful to uh, speak to you. I know my colleague, Pim Fox, wants to talk to you about the fractious nature of your district. I want to talk about your skill set. Out of Texas A&M, you became a CIA employee and operational Operations Officer. Does the President of the United States from your party, does he understand what our intelligence community does?
6: Um, he, he does understand what the intelligence community does. Uh, a selection of a guy like Mike Pompeo to run the CIA, he's a real professional and knows what he's doing. Selecting a guy like General Mattis to head DOD, which has, you know, significant Intelligence operations um, is is important, and while you know, I, I probably wouldn't be tweeting uh, about some of the things that our federal law enforcement or intelligence communities aren't involved in. Uh, the rank and file, the folks that right. do the job that I used to do, um, they don't listen to the the nonsense in the beltway. Um, they're they're quiet professionals that go on and do their job.
0: You people, and I, we feature the people that have died for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and frankly, mm-hmm. folks, there's. A lot of people at our central intelligence agency—we don't even know if they died. We never hear about it. Within this is centered the Justice Department. Is the president's interpretation of how justice works is it appropriate, or does he f- need to find a new tact for 2018?
6: um I think the, the Department of Justice should be you know independent um, one of the, the folks that should be looking out and making sure the Justice Department is doing everything properly is is the is Congress um, that's why we have an oversight role um, but we also can't just think that DOJ and the political leadership of DOJ are always going to do the the right thing um, and so so having oversight over them is is important um, and that's why Congress has that responsibility responsibility, um, you know, DOJ's ability to investigate Americans, to um, get, you know, FISA collection, that foreign intelligence um, collection on Americans. It's, you know, it, we got to make sure that they're following and protecting Americans' Fourth Amendment rights and that they're crossing all their T's and, and dotting all the I's. So um, there should always be a, a healthy a healthy tension, mm-hmm. um, and we should always be making sure um, that because, you know, the our... our at, You know, I I always say I've gotten the honor of serving side by side with many men and women in in the FBI. And the reason that we haven't had another attack on our homeland like that we saw at the Pentagon and and the Twin Towers in New York back in 2001 is because these quiet professionals are out doing their job um, every single day. Um, But again, uh, we got to make sure that we're all crossing the T's and dotting, dotting the I's.
4: Uh, Congressman, uh, you and your colleagues are going to have to vote uh, on a uh, resolution, on a bill, to keep the uh, the government open. I believe the deadline is January the 19th. Uh, if the president insists on funding for the border wall, Can you give us some thoughts about your position? Because I believe that you have already uh, gone on the record to say that a wall between the United States and Mexico on our southern border is a third century solution to a 21st century problem.
6: Um, that, that's pretty accurate. Uh, I think building a 30-foot-high concrete structure that takes four hours to penetrate from sea to shining sea is the most expensive and least effective way to do border security. Um, it's 2018. We do not do not have con- operational control of our border. And the reason we don't is because we don't look at all 2,000 miles of our southern border at the same time and the only way to do that is with technology and so I, I favor a smart wall or a smart solution to border security that relies on on technology now there are some places that a physical barrier makes sense um, where there's urban to urban contact you know something along the lines of some of the physical barriers that are already um, in existence makes a little bit more sense um, but this is you know, border security is, is going to be part of the debate as we look forward to funding the government in, in the next couple of weeks. And I think, um, I hope, the only way we're going to solve some of these problems is by working together or across uh, party lines. And um, I think we can we can get there. Sometimes the rhetoric, what you see on social media, on TV, is not always there, but behind closed doors, um, there's a lot of good conversations going on. Well. Could you
4: give us some idea of what some of those good conversations are? Because if you look at the votes that have taken place in Congress in 2017, there's no bipartisan anything. Uh,
6: well, I, I, I would I would disagree with that. I, I think probably one of the biggest things that we did was something that we have to do every year, the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, which authorizes, uh, you know, the activity of our military. It gave the largest raise mm. to our military in in eight years. Um, you know, piece of legislation that I work on dealing with IT procurement um, is something that is that was in, in included in that. So, so there 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 are there are some of those examples. Um, in uh, um, right. that we've seen in 2017, but we but we need more, and and I actually believe you know in a district like mine, um, folks want to see us come up here and, and actually get things done, um, and and right. not just have these food fights.
0: We just had Congressman. If you're just joining us here, we're thrilled to speak to the Congressman from the 23rd District of Texas. This is along the southern border up to San Antonio as well. His name is William uh, Will Heard, uh, out of Texas a and uh, A few years. Ago and a former uh, uh, operations officer with the CIA as well. Congressman Heard, I believe we just passed tax legislation. I believe somebody in New Jersey or Connecticut is hammered by the uh, inability to deduct a good portion of state and local taxes. I think the same thing maybe is going to happen in Del Rio, Texas to people that are very financially successful. How's the tax bill played on the border with Del Rio or the fat cats of San Antonio? Are they as livid as the people
6: in New Jersey? No, they're, they're not. Um, and, and the bottom line is, was when you really start getting into the details, this is something that's going to benefit all Americans. Um, in my district, 81% of the folks in the district um, do not itemize. So they fill out okay. the 1040EZ. So if you're filling out the 1040EZ and the, you um, have the, um, the standard deduction doubling, and that's a pretty big deal. I think a lot of people don't understand what the standard deduction is, and when you start explaining it to them, they get it. You know, folks like my brother, he's going to be able to buy a whole lot more diapers for his his twin girls okay. that are you know about to be t- about to be two. And when you look at the impact that this has on business, you know, we've seen the number of of, of bus biz- you know corporations that have increased hiring that are talking about the investment they're going to be doing in in in, um, in their businesses. We're seeing small businesses. Being able to take advantage of some of the pastors. But what about it?
0: How do you find a common ground with Mr. Smith of the 4th District of New Jersey? You're both Republicans. Do you Uh just throw Chris Smith under the bus?
6: No, look, I I think it goes down to every individual person, right? And and I think when you look at some of these high net worth individuals that are in um, New Jersey or New York City, when you look at you know, much of their income is probably coming through, um, you know, S-Corps or they're, they're going to see benefits mm-hmm. in other ways. And so I, I think really drilling down into the details on an individual is, is the most important yeah. thing and the way people are going to see this mm-hmm. realized. Well, one of the I, things I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, in, in looking at the impact to jobs in our economy and the markets is what we're going to do with NAFTA. Um, that's something that hasn't been talked about enough. Fair. Um, the, no. the, the, one way to screw up the markets—the run the markets are on—is screwing right. up NAFTA. Here's
0: here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you back on again soon, uh, Congressman Heard to talk about NAFTA. We've been unfair not to bring that up with you, uh, with your district on the border. Will heard the 23rd District of Texas, a Republican. Pim Fox, a surveillance bat phone just lit up like a candle. You think? I mean, it's just the lights. Just
4: we got to yeah, we got to get him back on. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, but what he about. said
0: there about Chris Smith in the fourth district of New Jersey is the whole debate.
4: Yeah, people need to have money in order to spend money. I think That's really the is the way how it works? works.
0: Yeah, that was great. Will Heard from Texas, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.